Hello and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church. My name is Wade Giffen, one of the pastors, and I am so glad to be able to welcome you to online worship today. We're continuing our summer series called Crosswords of Creation, where we're turning to the book of Genesis and seeing the significant moments, the significant stories where God is charting a pathway for reconciling all of creation back to God. It is so good to see you. Good to be with you on this day. Good to see those of you who are online. I can't see you with my eyes, but boy, I can see you with my heart. Glad that you've joined us in worship um, today. Redeemed. That is our word this week, redeemed. Um, no matter the brokenness, no matter the shackles or chains that we feel, we serve a mighty God, one who is about the business of redeeming. And that's where we want to focus this week. I have a uh, uh, we're continuing in our series called Crosswords of Creation. We've, we're making our way through Genesis. We're almost to the end. And uh, we have been um, looking at the ways these, these stories in Genesis that we usually hold in isolation, how God has kind of stitched them all together in this arc that um, shows us that we serve a God who is a God of redemption, a God who is working relentlessly to save us. So Today we turn to uh, chapter 45. I think uh, it'll probably be wrong on the screen because Pastor Wade turned the wrong, uh, the wrong reference in. So <laughs> we are over on chapter 45, starting uh, at verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine that has been in the land for these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are more than five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. 
You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you were here last week, I sent you home in a bit of a downer, didn't I? It was a tough week. It's hard for us to look at stories in the biblical text that point out to us the less than flattering realities of the human condition from which all of us suffer. Last week, we discovered in the story of Joseph and his amazing coat a deep-seated reality. Something was brewing under the surface. And at the center of that story, what was brewing under the surface was all of the older brothers, all of Joseph's older brothers hated him. That's a strong word. It's a strong emotion. In the text we had last week, it's even that word's there at least three times to describe how older brothers felt about the youngest brother. And we explored that story a little bit of how they had gotten to the place with their little brother Joseph that they not only despised him, but they came to hate him so much that they could no longer see any sacredness of who he was as a human. And so the plan, the plan was to kill him. Hate had moved them to the place where the decision was to kill him and to take that beautiful coat he had and and take it to their father and and say that he was killed by a wild animal. But one of their brothers, you remember Reuben, said, maybe we shouldn't kill him. So they threw him in the bottom of a pit. Ultimately, they pulled him out of the pit when they saw a band of Ishmaelites making their way to Egypt and sold him to them. So two weeks ago, all week long, I wrestled with the text. I was desperately searching for something in the story that would not leave us with a total downer. And then I came to the realization that sometimes the darkest realities of humanity, we have to see them in order to be able to see something greater, something that can be good. And so I hinted last week that this week would be part two of the story where God would take a dark moment, the darkest moment in this family's life, and turn it into redemption. This is, this is among many stories in the scriptures that reinforce over and over again something about God. And if you take nothing else from today, hear this. Our God is a God of redemption. Our God can do this. That the darkest most broken realities of the human life, what they actually do is give to God something that God can work with and redeem and turn into something good. And the word is redeem. That's, that's our word of the week, redeem. 
And what is, what is that word mean exactly? I mean, you can piece together a bunch of definitions of that word and essentially come down to the same thing. It's the action of saving or being saved from sin or error or And if that's our working definition, what, how does it play itself out in this story of this family that we're reading about? It is, it is God's action. It's what God does in the middle of a dysfunctional, broken family's horrible, even evil acts of sin against a brother. You see, essentially, it, it means seeing and witnessing how God can take the darkest, most broken stuff of the human life and transform it and save it and turn it into something that actually is life-giving. That horrible, evil, sinful, and ultimately Now, you might notice we were in chapter 37 last week and we're in 45 today. There's a bunch of stuff that happened between those in Egypt, he was purchased by a man named Potiphar in slavery. He was, uh, he was the royal Now, in those chapters that we didn't have between last week and this week, there were ups and downs, and there were setbacks. As a matter of fact, the biggest one probably was when Joseph got accused of sleeping with Potiphar's wife, which he did not do, but he got thrown into prison as a result of that. And so again, when we got to that point of the story, it looked like it's all over for Joseph. That was until Pharaoh had some dreams. Pharaoh had some dreams that deeply distressed him. Have you ever had one of those dreams that you just can't shake off? That it just hangs with you? You know, the kind of dream that when you wake up from it, you go, whew, thank God that's not for real. I was sleeping, but then you still can't let go of it. That's the kind of dream that Pharaoh was dealing with. And so um, it was an opening for God to be able to move because Joseph had gained this reputation of being a person who could accurately interpret somebody's dreams. So they took him to Pharaoh to see if he could make any sense of the dreams. And Joseph did interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. And, and here's how he interpreted his dreams. He told Pharaoh that what they meant was there were going to be seven years of plenty, and then that would be followed with a seven-year great famine that would come over the whole land. Things are going to go great for seven, and then it's going to be horrible for seven. And Joseph not only interpreted the dreams for Pharaoh, but he gave him advice as to what to do about that. He said, all right, in the next seven years of plenty, we're going to store up a portion of every single harvest. So when the famine hits... We are ready. Now, to shorten the story a little bit, here's what came of that. You know how if you are ever a person who has a great idea for something, how all of a sudden you seem to be in charge of it? How's that work out? Sometimes you just don't want to give people your great ideas anymore, right? And that's what happened to Joseph. He had the great idea, so he was put in charge of doing all, all of that. And when the famine did hit, which it did, they were ready and not only were they ready with their store, but they had stored up enough for all of the surrounding regions around and all the nations around them. What a startling turn of events. Joseph must have been in his jail cell that morning 
you know, just waking up expecting the same old stuff from the day, like every other day, and then some clamoring sound of guards coming his way, he must have immediately had that, oh boy, what now? And the guards grabbed him up, and they cleaned him up a bit, I'm sure. You know, um, I, I, I tried to resist this, but sometimes I just can't resist double dog dares. But when I, when I, was, when I was thinking about, about cleaning him up, I immediately thought about the scene in Wizard of Oz. You know, and they're getting everybody ready to go see, you know, brush, brush here, brush, brush. Okay, thanks for going along on that one with me. So they brush, brushed and buffed him up a little bit and uh, maybe put him in some presentable clothes, take him in and drop him at the feet of Pharaoh. And by the time that day was over, his whole life had changed. You see, it was a day like this. He woke up in the morning a prisoner in jail, and he went to sleep at night, the prime minister in the palace. Y'all, look at what God can do. Amen? Now, I bet you can guess who came begging for food for their family in the famine. And yes, it was Joseph's brothers. Now, by this time, Joseph had become the governor of Egypt. He was in charge of everything. He was the big boss, the big cheese. And Joseph recognized who they were, but they didn't, they didn't know who he was. I mean, why would they? Who would have imagined their little brother they sold off to a band of travelers into slavery would be the governor of the whole nation? And they're now bowing to him. Now, as an aside, you might remember from last week, Joseph had some dreams that he couldn't wait to tell his brothers about. This is kind of probably the straw that broke the camel's back and how he ended up getting thrown in the pit. You remember in those dreams, he says, I had these dreams, and what they mean is that someday you will all bow down to me. And they couldn't take it. Well, I guess some dreams come true. And as was Joseph's usual personality, the chapters leading up to this, he plays games with his brother, this back and forth thing that he plays with him. So I don't want you to get to the point that you think that, that Joseph has become this, this saint, this star, right? He still had that stuff in his personality. But when we get to today's text and they come back to him, um, he, he puts that all behind him. And he tells them who he is. The brothers were terrified. Can you imagine if you had done that to your brother and he's now the big cheese in the whole country and you come and bow before him and he reveals himself to you? They were terrified. And immediately, though, he changes the moment. He points them to what God has been able to do. He doesn't dwell on the evil. He doesn't dwell on the hate the things that motivated them to do horrible things that they did to him. He starts by showing them and showing us what God can do. Because God is in the business of working to redeem even the most horrible things of life. Y'all, look at what God can do. Little Joseph from a broken, dysfunctional family, sold into slavery. He becomes the governor of Egypt in charge of everything, especially the most valuable resources they had stored up for years. Now, when we read this story, sometimes I think we stop short. 
We, we think that this story is about this lovely story of a family getting all restored back together, that that's the redemption of the story, that that's the deal. But look up a little bit. God has a longer vision. This isn't just about God working in a dysfunctional group of siblings with sibling rivalry coming in finally for their group hug at the end of the story. This is not a story about just feeding that family. This story says something about God. It shows us God's larger redemption in saving not just this group, but saving the whole community, and it happens through a disastrous family. We like to believe that stuff can happen, right? It's the family's reunion that opened the door for what God could do. Now, here's the thing about redemption. And this is, this is what, how we see how this family plays out in this story. Sometimes for God to work God's best redemption, some reconciliation has to take place among some people. And this story is a perfect example of that because the one, Joseph, who was the object of the hate and the object of the brokenness and the object of the dysfunction, is the person who leads that family to reconciliation. What did he do? He did this remarkable thing. Here's what he said to them, and I'm going to go back to verse 20. I want you to hear this again. He said to his brothers, do not be afraid. Remember, they were terrified. He said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good so that many people should be kept alive. You see how he expanded the vision of what God is doing? And here's the thing. Joseph forgave. Joseph enabled reconciliation. He put their common broken life, not in, in, in front of them, but he put that broken life into God's hands so that God could work a bigger intention with it. It was more than just a family squabble. It was really the bigger possibilities of what God would be able to accomplish if he worked a moment of reconciliation within that family. It is the belief that God can do something huge from this horrible family situation. God could not only save them, but God could save the world through that family. And a whole lot of times in those chapters between last week and this week, there was this mantra that Joseph has. You can, you can find it if you look back at the text. Every time there was a turn of events leading to this, Joseph's phrase was always, the Lord is in it. Do you see the key that he had in that whole journey? The ups, the downs, the victories, the struggles. He always would say, the Lord is in it. And Joseph made it less about him and more about what God would be able to do. Now, those brothers weren't necessarily given a second chance, another crack at getting it right. They probably never got it right. They never could make up for what they had done. But God didn't depend upon an attitude change in the brothers. God simply used that moment of evil that they perpetuated and redeemed it, turned it to something good. God gathered up their misdeeds and placed it all together for God's good purposes. Joseph's leadership was defined by seeing and understanding uh, this reality, and so he brought healing to the fractured family, and he ultimately made sure food went to a hungry world. 
God's leading was a mysterious use of his life. So here's the thing. God sees the opportunity to redeem something evil that happened in a family so that Joseph would end up in a position where God could work through him to redeem the world. Wow, to be used by God that way. And in this way, in this case, reconciliation in the family. So it makes me wonder a little bit. In all of the broken stuff and the broken relationships that we have in our personal lives, and all of the broken stuff, broken relationships, evil and dysfunction that is in the world, where is God's opportunity in that brokenness? Where can God do a work of redemption? Your question for us individually is this. How can where in your life can an action of reconciliation give God some stuff to work with? That God can bring the world closer to what God wants for the world. Now, sometimes we suffer from that, I'm just one little pin here on the earth kind of thing. You know, my life really doesn't make that big of a difference. My little trivial dysfunction or things, I mean, how's that going to impact the whole world? But I bet Joseph might have wondered the same thing. And he was faithful to the reality of what had happened in his family and what God could do. Look at what God can do. What if we looked at the places of the deepest brokenness and asked, what if I opened the door to let God do God's best work of redemption here? What does God require of me that redemption can happen? What is the first step I can take? Although the particulars of our individual stories may be different, the need for reconciliation is as necessary in today's world as it was in Joseph's day. In a world that is filled with so much pain and division, y'all, as followers of Jesus, we should never cease to seek to do the work, to do our part, until reconcilia reconciliation is a very present reality in the world. Not go along with the crowd, not go along with the gang, not follow that person or this person, but follow Jesus' lead so that God can do redemption. This is a communion Sunday, and I think this text is perfect for communion. You see, I believe that our ability to lead in redemption ourselves comes first from being people who are redeemed. What do I mean by that? Do you know how we always like to say, well, you know, you don't really know what love is? How do you know what love is? Well, then we say it's because someone loves us first. When somebody loves us first, then we begin to experience a no love, and then we can love others as well. Redemption works the same way. We can't lead in the movement towards redemption if we don't know that we are redeemed, that redemption has already happened in our own lives. And as people who bear the family name Christian, we look to Jesus. We look to what he did, an ultimate act that God did in order that the world could be saved. And it begins with you, it begins with me, that we are indeed redeemed. You see, this story of Joseph is just one little episode in a whole bunch of episodes where God redeems where God works relentlessly to redeem the world. 
So every time we come to this table, every time we receive communion, we are reminded that for our own broken places, our own dysfunction in our lives, in our families, I mean, who can't say that their family is not a little dysfunctional, right? Are you with me on that? In the midst of all of that brokenness and sin that we experience, it, is, it gives God an opportunity, an opportunity to work something greater, to work through us to move towards redeeming all of creation. So the invitation from the table today is bring that stuff, that brokenness, that sin, that dysfunction, whatever it is, bring it to the table and hand it off. Jesus can do that in our lives. So don't take it when you leave here today. Take with you today a renewed sense of God's amazing grace and our role in partnering with God to redeem the world. The most horrible broken stuff in the world and the most horrible broken stuff in our own lives. God is a God of redemption. There is no brokenness. There is no dysfunction. There is no sin. There is no darkness of our lives that God cannot only overcome, but God will redeem and use it to redeem the world. Look at what God can do. And he said, take and eat. This is my body for you. Do this and remember me. And then as the meal went on that evening, he came to one of the chalices. And he took the chalice, probably raised it, gave thanks to God, and gave it to all of his friends and disciples. And he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. We know about the ordeal of the trial and the betrayal and the cross that comes, perhaps one of the most dark, evil, driven experiences that anyone could witness. But y'all, look at what God can do. God worked that moment. And three days later, everything changed. God worked to redeem the world. And when I say God worked to redeem the world, you know what's included in that? You. God worked to redeem you. So when you come to the table today, receive from this table a reminder of that redemption so that when you leave this place, you leave as one, as an agent of the Lord, if you will, to help redeem a broken world. Every time I break this bread, Abraham, I love to look at how ragged and torn up and shredded it is. There's rough edges. Our life's like that a lot, isn't it? Just like that. And then we're reminded that the lifeblood of redeemed us and that we partner with you to redeem a broken world. Pour out your Holy Spirit on all here on these gifts of bread and cup and make them be for us the body and blood of Christ so that we might body of Christ redeemed by his blood. 
or a world that is broken. Use us and use this moment to remind us of who we are, of whose we are, and that we are indeed redeemed. In the powerful, redeeming name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So thanks for being with us in worship today. I'm so glad you stopped by and chose to tune in to our online worship. Make sure you're back here next week as we continue our journey, the crosswords of creation. God bless you. Have a great week.